All right. Welcome to episode 32 of APS Radio. I am joined by Captain Chris Moore of Chesapeake, Virginia Fire. Good afternoon to you. Hey, Jim. How you doing today, brother? I'm good. You know I'm good because I've already been talking to you for over 50 minutes before we finally decided to hit the record button. Great conversation, man. I feel like I've known you <laughs> forever, dude. I know. And we, we should have like just started and hit record from the start. I we, think that we blew it. Yeah, that would have been amazing. I think everybody would have got a lot you, out of our you conversation. Guys, you guys missed out on so much, I'm telling you. So we're going to try to recreate it here. Yeah, let's do it, man. So, you know, don't really have an agenda. It, it's just a topic is just really behavioral health and the fire service. And I think you and I have both. I mean, there's a lot of parallels. Um, you know, first of all, we're both really good looking men. You know, we have to That's put right. that out there for those people that are listening out there and they can't see us. But uh, I'm just kidding. We, at least for me, I'm no, uh, uh, anyway. You're not kidding. We're good looking. Uh, okay. Yeah. But trying to be humble here, Chris. But <laughs> uh, man, we, we've, um, we both have been in some dark places and we both have climbed out of that and we, we got the light there. It's, uh, you know, so I, if you will, I'm, I'm just going to give it to you. Like, just kind of, kind of sum up that journey of just, you know, where you were in the fire service, you know, uh, where things went wrong and then how you got built back up and we'll have conversations in between all that stuff. I'm going to try not to, to step on your toes or anything, but I, I want, I want you to kind of share your story if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, just a, a brief background. Um, I grew up the son of a police officer so public safety has always been in my family and in my blood. And uh, I started in 1993 in the city of Virginia Beach, where I live, as a volunteer firefighter. I did that for seven years. And constantly, every chance that I got, I was showing up at the firehouse and doing the doing the work and just taking in everything that I could. and. Um, Eventually, I ended up getting offered a job by the city of Chesapeake, Virginia. It's a neighboring city right next door. And that was in 2000. And that's where I currently serve now as a career firefighter. And I'm a, a captain right now in charge of an engine company. So uh, I've been, been doing it for 30 years, grew up with it, like I said, with my father. And uh, one of the things that was, was always kind of taught to me and it's kind of where I went wrong and where a lot of us go wrong is um, one more thing about my dad, though, too, is he was a uh, Vietnam veteran as, as well. He was in the Marine Corps in, in Vietnam. And the, where I kind of went wrong was it was instilled in me starting, I guess, from my father and then everybody uh, that I pretty much everybody I encountered in the first responder world. Uh, when I got into it in the early 90s, we still predominantly had that suck it up buttercup attitude and that we couldn't show true emotions. And I was taught that. I was taught to have the dark sense of humor. And um, you, you just, you deal with things and you don't always talk about things. My dad also instilled in me, um, which not talking shit about my dad or anything. Um, my dad was a, was a great man and did a lot of great things, but it was the whole, you're protecting your family 
by keeping work at work. Don't bring it home. He wouldn't bring it home as a uh, law enforcement officer. And when I got into the fire service, that was some of the, the advice that really stuck with me that, that he gave me is leave work there. You're going to see um, and, and do a lot of um, troubling things. But you, you got to shield everybody. You can't bring that stuff home. And that was the, the mantra that I always went by for the longest time in my career. And I thought that it was healthy doing that because I'm protecting my loved ones. And I, I didn't realize how much not talking about it was affecting me because I wasn't talking to my family about it. And like I said, with the, the whole suck it up, this is what we do mentality that was really uh, prevalent at the time, um, we wouldn't really talk seriously about the um, events that would unfold on a shift. And it was um, just not very healthy. I ended up finding out. I use the analogy. I know there's a, a lot of people out there that, that use this and have heard it, but that our, our heads, and I know this is a pretty big head right here, but it's like a bucket. And every time we're exposed to a trauma, it goes into the bucket. And if we don't have some kind of a healthy form of coping, a healthy coping mechanism to start releasing some of that stuff that's going into the bucket, every trauma is going to keep building up until eventually it overflows. And when it overflows, it's not always a pretty sight. We, uh, you and I know firsthand, and I, I think everybody listening out there um, can relate to this. And um, to put that in context, the statistics for the, the average person in a lifetime will see usually between three and five traumatic events in a lifetime. We can see that in one shift. And you factor that in to a, a 20, 30, we even have guys doing over 40 year career in the fire service. And um, I say fire service, but first responder uh, community. And that's a lot of stuff that we're, we're seeing and we're being exposed to. So I didn't have the healthy coping mechanisms. Like I said, I started in 93, became career in 2000. And it was uh, 2017 that um, my bucket overflowed. And um, it was a, um, a pediatric call, which uh, it seems like pediatric calls resonate with, with a lot of us a, a lot harder than most calls. And I, I've run um, a lot of pediatric calls prior to 2017. But like I said, that's the one that finally made my bucket overflow. And um, afterwards, I got back to the firehouse and um, we were doing like a, uh, a SISM model at the time. And regardless of people's thoughts on SISM or peer support or, or whatever, my personal on SISM is I didn't like it and um, didn't agree with that. I, I don't think for me, it doesn't work. Um, it might work great for other people, but I just choose not for, for myself because all I've ever seen with it and experienced myself is we get everybody 
in the room and you go around, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Well, with that, that stigma that we have, of course, everybody's going to say they're okay when it's their turn to, to be questioned because we all think, and I don't know, um, it started way before I ever came into the fire service, but we all think we have that S on our chest. And um, a, a lot of that is um, added stressors that's put on us from the outside uh, world looking in at first responders that um, say that we're heroes and, and this and that. Well, we're, we're not. And um, we all had that mentality. So when the, the chief went around and asked us, we all said we were okay. And all right, that concludes this. Um, you guys have a good rest of your shift. So we did what we always do. And when the tones went off, uh, we jump on the, the rig and run the next call. Well, that night when I was in my, uh, my bunk, when things finally settled down, um, I started having um, just intrusive thoughts about that call. Um, just, I would close my eyes and just, um, it was like I was right back hours earlier at that call. And um, I was like, man, what, what's going on here? And when I finally did get a chance to, to fall asleep, that's when dreams from calls that were um, over 15 years earlier started popping up in my head and that I had never thought twice about those calls were just coming up and I was reliving them like I was right there. And um, it started scaring the crap out of me. I got off shift that morning and... Um, just in my, my everyday life when I was off from the firehouse and I would go to bed that evening, these thoughts were popping up in these past calls. And this continued on and on and on for, um, it was four months, because um, it was April that year. Uh, I literally thought I was going crazy. Uh, like I said, this was 2017. I had heard about post-traumatic stress but I didn't think it was me and anything that I could have had. The reasoning I say that is right here where I live in Virginia Beach, a huge military town. All I knew about post-traumatic stress was stuff you hear in the news um, or you, you can read in some books or publications at the time where it mostly references the military God bless our veterans coming back from overseas, defending our freedoms and everything and all the stuff that they're exposed to. That's post-traumatic stress. If it's a first responder, then either they were involved in a line of duty death or a near miss or an officer involved shooting or something like that to qualify or to, to be post-traumatic stress. I just, I had no clue that it was just being exposed to the cause and everything that we were on. And I literally thought I was just, something happened to me and I just snapped and I was going crazy. Um, I equate it to, for us older guys that remember the, uh, the good old horror flicks back in the 80s and 90s, Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm still scared of that stuff, Chris. I, I was literally getting to the point where I was afraid to go to sleep and I would not sleep because of the dreams and the, actually, I don't want to say dreams, the nightmares I was having in the night terrors. Um, my family, they didn't know um, what Chris was coming home. 
they didn't know what was going on. They just thought that I something just turned me into a bigger jerk. Um, they used the term that they were walking on eggshells and um, just started. I was disassociating myself from them and other family and friends. But my wife and son, they weren't too worried about me disassociating myself from them because I was just being such a big jerk. They were welcoming um, the fact that um, dad would just go hibernate in the bedroom or um, my wife actually um, ended up telling me afterwards that um, she would pray that I would get picked up for an overtime shift so I wouldn't be home or I would go to a conference or training event and be away from home. And when you hear all stuff like that, it, it's, I mean, it really hits hard, but I, I never knew that until way after the fact. Well, like I said, we're, we're four months later, we're into um, towards the end of April. And somebody just noticed within the department, um, saw me one day at a, uh, a function while we were on duty and noticed that I wasn't my normal self. And um, they they reached out to me, and this is a prominent figure within my organization. And they they took me out to lunch the the next day, and we had a uh, a, a very open, honest, and candid conversation. And this was somebody who's been doing this career for a lot longer than I have, and has more bugles than I have. And he gave me permission to just speak to him like you and I are speaking right now. It's, it wasn't um, firefighter to officer. Um, it was just two guys having a conversation. I opened up and, and told him everything that was going on. He gave me um, a bunch of great advice. He knew my family. And he asked if I ever share um, calls or anything with my family. Do I ever vent? And, and I don't. I never did. And I told him that. And he's like, you, you need to talk about these calls, obviously not violating any HIPAA rules, laws, or regulations, but um, just share your feelings with your family. And um, then he also advised me to um, explore my faith if that's something that I was, um, was big in. And he, he told me that I would be surprised to know the number of people that are going through the same stuff that I was going through right then at that moment and told me that uh, a lot of people that we see walking down the hallways of administration or in the firehouse uh, when we greet them each morning or whenever it is during the day and they have a big smile on their face he's like you'd be surprised the the guys that have that big smile on their face that are actually hurting inside and struggling like I was in that moment so I walked out from that lunch meeting um, with a, a good sense of relief and feeling better, had a heart to heart with my wife and son that evening. And um, I thought I was fixed just from one lunch meeting. I was like, holy shit, I am good. And um, just went on with life and um, everything was was great. I was still having some nightmares and everything, but they did for some reason with just talking about it, getting it out there. They did tone down a little bit um, for probably about six months or so. 
And then they, they just started picking up because I was still getting exposed to the trauma. Even though I was talking to my family about certain things now, I was still getting exposed and I never really or truly got any professional help. So it ended up turning into um, using that internal drugstore and self-medicating and doing things that, that gave me like a dopamine rush to make me feel good in the moment because I was feeling so horrible all the time. And um, some of the things that I turned to was I turned to alcohol and I wasn't doing it to get drunk. I was doing it to try and help me fall asleep because I had trained my body um, not to go to sleep because I was afraid of the the nightmares and um, how I was being haunted by everything. So um, I, I started drinking. And um, uh, another thing that I was doing, I was spending money that I didn't have. That's a, another vice that I'm finding out from talking to other first responders that, that that's actually a very big thing that that we do because it made me feel like a um, a really good cool dude a lot cooler than I was if I could take my guys when we got off shift one morning take them to Top Golf or somewhere and pick up the tab all the beers and the games and all that and then the tab comes and I pick it up and they're like oh, hey Captain thank you we appreciate that and um. I felt like that was things that that made me just feel better about myself. And then the third thing is um, I actually would reach out for um, trying to think of a good way to put this, but it was, I don't want to say it was a full sexual addiction, but I looked for intimacy, even though I was, I was married, I looked for intimacy and acceptance from women in uh, the wrong places instead of reaching out for it and bettering what I had at home I was trying to get that that quick fix and that quick um, feeling of acceptance and and love from other people and um, it really spiraled me even lower and deeper down into that dark place that that we're talking about I, I was just at my wits end and um uh a year later now um towards the the end of summer in 2018 i remember that i had a uh, mentor in the fire service and within my department he had told me in the past that he had a number to a therapist that works with first responders and I finally reached out to my mentor and got that information. Well, getting the information and making the phone call, there was probably about a um, two-month interval there. I, I just couldn't bring myself to make the phone call. And then one day, um, I was just just really, really struggling. And at that moment, I fortunately, I knew I needed to make that phone call, and I did. And the, the shock, I, I wish that we would have had FaceTime or, or all phone calls at that moment would have been um, video conference. Because I, looking back on it now, I would have loved to have seen 
probably what I imagine now to be a horrific looking face on this therapist um, when I called and he answered the phone. It, it was just silence on my end for it seemed like eternity before I could actually get the words out. And I finally got the two words out after I, I think realistically it was only about probably 20 seconds. I finally said, help me. And I, I know there's people say this all the time. Those were the two most important words that I ever got out of my mouth to this day. It's helped me. God knows it wasn't I do. <laughs> but, <laughs> so um gotta gotta inject humor in this. But I, I, I got those words out. And um he finally um struck up a, a brief conversation with me, finding out who I was and uh, what I was going through. We set up a appointment. And then the second hardest thing that I ever did was showing up to that appointment. I wanted to blow it off so bad that day. And it actually took me, which I'm not proud of this, um, having a, a drink before I, I left my house to go to it. And um, I'm glad that I did that. I'm, I'm glad I made that phone call. I'm glad that I showed up at this therapist's um, office and had this appointment. Uh, for some reason, and this is another thing that will probably mostly resonate with the older um, audience here. I had always envisioned going to a therapist as I walk into the door. There's going to be this big roaring fireplace going, a leather couch that he tells me to lay down on. And then he's sitting in this big wing chair smoking a pipe and um, having me just like, crying talking about all of my problems and this and that and once i get my problems out he's like you know what screw this and he just grabs his couch and he's like i'm done i'm walking out of here i don't need to hear that but um it, it wasn't man it was um two people two guys having a conversation just like you and i right now and i think more people need to realize that that's what therapy starts out as it's just a couple people having a conversation. And if therapists, I say they're, they're like a pair of shoes. They're not one size fits all. If you go to a therapist and, and you have a conversation with them and you don't feel comfortable, then go find another one. If they don't have all the tools that, that are normally used traditionally to help first responders, or, or anybody process their traumatic events that we've witnessed. And when I say that, I'm one of the things I'm talking about is EMDR, the eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Find another one, find one that works for you and that you're comfortable with. Fortunately for, for me, I was very comfortable with, with this guy and he had a lot of stuff to truly help me with. And um, it was a, uh, a great, great interaction and started getting therapy on a regular basis until unfortunately um, after a little over a year with him he had a um, tragedy within his practice and the practice shut down and i was left without a therapist and then trying to find that right fit that i just spoke about 
afterwards was extremely difficult for me um, to find somebody that was familiar with first responders because um, we've all had um, throughout this when I was looking for one I had an experience and I hear a lot of people out there first responders that have had uh, likewise experience where you go to a therapist and they're not familiar with first responders we start sharing a lot of the stuff that we're exposed to we see we do and they literally start crying i experienced that when i was looking for a new therapist and it's a very awkward moment when you have that happen and um, all of a sudden you turn into the therapist and start helping them but um yeah, just, just know for anybody out there um, that's wants to get the help and uh, process things, um, you you need that fit that you are comfortable with. And they have to, the, the therapist has to be comfortable with you too. And um, because if, if you're not going to be completely open, honest, and candid with your therapist about what you're feeling and experiencing and going through, then they're not going to be able to truly help you until you can fully open up. And um, I finally did get to find the right fit for me. And this therapist actually was the one who introduced me to the, the EMDR I just spoke of. And that made a hell of a difference for anybody out there that's not familiar with it. Um, I kind of dumb it down and um, I was going to say, uh, dumb firefighter terms but um i just i dumb it down for all all first responders just doing common language because one thing i don't like uh personally is when we get a lot of uh doctors or therapists or counselors that start telling us stuff and they're talking like way over our head stuff that we can't um fully understand or grasp but um so what it is is when we get experience to these things um, it gets filed away in the filing cabinet, like right here, we'll just say in the front of our brain. But when you have the EMDR, what it does, it reprocesses it. And in theory, what it does, it just refiles it from the, the front of the filing cabinet to the back of your filing cabinet. It doesn't brainwash you or um, remove your thoughts or feelings or anything like that, but it just kind of tucks it away. And um, it, it's it's a really good process that I found works for me. And um, I, I've been doing that for, for quite a while. And I was doing, doing really good, actually um, started going around speaking at conferences, sharing my story and uh, symposiums and with other departments and agencies and was doing, doing really well. And we had another um, very horrible call in March of 21 that uh, bothered me, even though I was in therapy, I was still having a hard time processing it. And as we were coming up on the, the one year anniversary of it, March of 22, I uh, started getting a lot more anxious, having a lot worse flashbacks, harder time reprocessing the, the call and, and just getting everything um, under control. And that dark place that I was in a couple years earlier, um, I fell right back into it 
even a, it was much, much darker this time. I couldn't control it. I was going back to my vices that I had had. And um, I just, I wanted things to stop. I was done. I was over everything. I wanted life to stop when I say I wanted things to stop. Um, I just wanted um, these visions from this call to, to go away. And I didn't realize at the time that um, it wasn't going to, to stop my pain or anything. If me taking my life wasn't going to stop my pain, all it was going to do, and I realized this after the fact, was all that my suicide attempt, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but a lot of suicide attempts, it just doesn't stop the pain, it passes it on. And, and um, I'll get to that in just a second, but on the uh, the morning of March 16th, 2022, I got off shift at the firehouse and I uh, drove straight home. I didn't say anything to anybody at the firehouse that morning. I just gave a, the, I did give a quick turnover to uh, the oncoming officer. And usually I would sit around and have some coffee with uh, my crew that's going home and the guys coming in, just socialize and everything. I just um, walked out of there like a, a zombie. My mind was made up, set. I was, determined to end my life and um, got just about home, pulled over um, probably about a half a mile away and looked at my ring doorbell camera. And I waited until I saw my wife and my son leave the house because I didn't want any interactions with them or anything. I just wanted to go home and do this. So once they left, I, I went home. I had my note written. And I had um, a whole bottle, I think it was, I think it was almost 50 um, that were still in there of Xanax. I took the Xanax and um, I don't think I quite finished a fifth of bourbon. And um, next thing I know, I remember very vaguely interactions at my household. Um, one of the guys from work um, showed up. And the neighbor and then the, the fire department was there and the medics. And next thing I know, I'm waking up in the hospital. And this is where the, the whole thing comes into play. What I said about I wasn't stopping the pain. I was passing it on because when I woke up, my uh, wife and my son were by my side. And uh, my mother joined them within um, a few minutes, showed up there. And um, I saw the hurt and the pain was all over their faces and in their hearts and everything. And it's really, it, that resonates with me wholeheartedly. And um, I'll never forget when my eyes first woke uh, opened up and I saw, I mean, I was connected to machines and stuff like that and saw, saw that. And I'll, I'll never forget it. And uh, I know they won't either. I know I traumatized them. And um, it was, it was an experience. Uh, I think we have as a society, a lot of work we have to do 
for mental health for everybody and the care and facilities. I ended up spending four days in um, the hospital. Um, and it was it was very eye opening to me um, that that whole experience uh, that I had. Uh, you and I had a, a conversation earlier where we started talking um, about an organization. Uh, a good friend of mine, after my suicide experience, he told me about a organization called Save a Warrior. Uh, they started out in California, but they are currently in Hillsborough, Ohio, not too far from you guys. And um, my friend strongly encouraged me to reach out to them and try and get into their nonprofit organization uh, for the help that I needed. And I did, I was immediately accepted into um, their cohort. And the um, it was the end of April of 2022, a, um, about a month and a half after my suicide attempt that I was at Save a Warrior, a 72 hour program. And it made the world of, of difference to me. And I am happy to be here today and blessed and thankful. Every day I'm learning and I'm working and I am um, a huge, huge advocate for the, uh, the behavioral health now for our first responders and trying to help people not to get to where I got and where where others have been. And um, there, there's so much more. I mean, we can go so many different directions with, with our conversation right now, but that's kind of what got me to where I was and started showing my, my rise that I, I really had after uh, Save a Warrior last year. And I, I just, I can't preach enough. I've learned uh, down this, this road that I'm on that there is a lot that needs to be fixed um, within the nation, but within each individual state, I'm finding out from talking to first responders all across the country, um, every states have different problems when it comes to our coverage and some states have, uh, post-traumatic stress as presumption. Some don't have any cover coverage at all. And even if something is uh, presumptive that it came from the job, uh, they will still fight you tooth and nail. And it's just very, um, very disheartening. A lot of the stories, and I'm sure people hearing my story right now, um, some of it can be disheartening. Some of it is inspirational. Uh, we're gonna cover the whole gamut. But it's um, it's disheartening when when I hear the stuff about what others like myself are, are struggling with going up against um, state trying to get coverage for things that the the job did to us. And there might be some people out there listening right now that still have that that same mentality or attitude that well you knew what you were signing up for when you became a firefighter or first responder. And yes, I did, but it doesn't mean that I wanted this to 
affect me in the way that it had. I wasn't given the the proper tools and the know how to know when and how to use those tools like I do right now. We just weren't given that stuff back in the day. So I think it's really important we start giving the the people the that are coming into the job, the career paths as first responders, the the proper know-how and know when to use these tools to to better help themselves so they don't go into these dark places or when they unfortunately do get dragged into these dark places they know how to get the help and get themselves out and um it's just so often from politicians within the states all the way down to um local politicians and people within organizations, it seems like how, um, and, and I'm not downplaying this, cancer has been for at least 10 years now, the, the really big, rightfully so, the really big topic in firefighting. And just recently, the, the hot topic is also coming up as first responder mental health and wellness. Well, it seems like a lot of the, like I said, the politicians all the way from state level down to to local and uh, people within organizations are talking the talk because it is the hot topic. But when it comes time for all of our members, our, our brothers and sisters out there, they aren't truly walking the walk when it comes time to back us up, help us and get us the help that we need and that we deserve and that's that that hurts man that that truly truly is troublesome and it's like um uh, mike tyson would, would always say um everybody thinks they have the answer to the test until they get punched in the mouth and these guys are they're eventually going to get punched in the mouth in the form of a uh, a member that has a suicide attempt and they're going to be caught with their 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 pants down they're going to be caught off guard and i'm not making light of this either we as first responder organizations across the country we know how to put on a funeral i wish we never god i wish we never had to put on another first responder funeral in the rest of our lives. I wish we didn't, but it's inevitable. We're, we're going to, it's, it's our job, but we don't know how to handle one of our own when they are struggling and have a, a suicide attempt and survive it. Um, I'm, I'm finding there isn't a whole lot of um, SOPs, de- departments across the country, I'm finding there's not a whole lot of departments that have SOPs or um, ARs or rules and regulations or anything in place other than for the fire service. Um, NFPA 1582 talks about um, suicide attempts, keeping somebody out for a year. That's the only thing I can really find that addresses suicide attempts. And I, I've talked to uh, a lot of people all across the country, 
and nobody can find anything right now. So I know some people um, like this saying, and some people are against what I'm about to say right here. But when it comes to suicides for first responders, unfortunately, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen within organizations. It's a matter of when, if, and, and that's what they, they don't like when you leave it just like that as a blanket statement. You, I, I got to put this if in there to validate it. It's a matter of when it's going to happen if we don't start getting our stuff straight and truly, truly advocating for our members, both um, past retirees, present, the new guys coming in, and the, the people that are going to be coming well after we're gone. We need to put stuff in place to help our members. Once we do that, we can start curtailing that number, the, the, the numbers of first responders. You and I were talking earlier, um, the, the number of line of duty deaths for firefighters last year was 96. The number of firefighter suicides last year was 80. And that's roughly with only 40% of them actually being reported and validated. So you can actually at least double that number to 160. We're losing more to suicide now than we are to line of duty deaths. And it's just, it's just not, not right, man. We, we, we can be doing so much more, but it, it's gonna take, um, take a lot more than, than you and I. And I know there are so many other great advocates out there that speak about this. And um, I, I love all of those, those guys and girls and, and what they're doing and what we're doing, this, this movement that we're doing. But we, we just, we gotta take it to the next level. And uh, I'm really trying to, to push this, like, like yourself and the, the brothers helping brothers and, and everything, the, the grassroots is where it's at. We can't lose sight of who we are and why we are doing this in our servant's heart. We came into this career path as um, somebody wanting to give back to the community and help others because we had true servant's hearts. But somewhere along the way, a, a lot of people are losing track of that servant's heart and they don't wanna serve us anymore and, and help us get what we need and where we need to be. So I, I think it's amazing what we're, we're doing with a lot of these conferences and symposiums and um, just individual speakers coming to departments or whatever and getting it out there. And I really want to continue us taking it to that next level and going to our state representatives and whatever we got to do. It's just so important, just like the, the cancer. And I'm not downplaying that one bit. Um, we, we need to elevate this right up there um, with those. And so I'm going to take a, uh, a drink of water right now. <laughs> I know I just went on on my tangent right there.
I, I asked for it though, Chris. I mean, I, I gave you the, the platform. I said, just here, go do your thing. And you certainly did your thing. I thank you for that. And there's so much, there's so many directions I can go. And I'm sure the listeners are like, where is he, where is he going to go? What questions is he going to ask? I, you know, the one thing that's been sitting with me, because again, there's, there's a lot of similarities between you and me. Um, and I want to ask you this, uh, one of the things I yearn for is to to be normal, to go back before all this chaos started, to just be that old, I guess, actually young, um, energetic, happy-go-lucky individual. That guy is kind of gone, and I miss him. Do you feel the same way? I did. And, um, and I'll never, um, never discount anybody's feelings or anything. I think everybody's feelings are, are valid. And, um, I say that because you and I have been through this, the same organization, save a warrior. And, post save a warrior and doing the the work associated with that afterwards i am who i was prior to all this i am a i'm the happy go lucky might not be as energetic as i once was but i'm not as young as i once was but no i i feel dude i feel so much so much better so free and um one of the things I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, but for those out there that that don't know, is a, a lot of times we let the the past really interfere in our lives and bring us down. Um, as far as the future, we worry about the futures, stuff that hasn't even happened or transpired yet. We don't even know if it's going to happen. So one of the things that I, I was just taught from that and that I, I really try and live my life by now which i catch myself sometimes not doing it but i try and live more in in the present and just be here present for my myself and present for um for everybody around me but just to be in the the moment and not worry about stuff that's out of my control and man i i tell you once i i started putting that tool in my toolbox and knowing to do that i just i look at things so differently now and i mean you know the term that we just need to clean up our side of the street i need to be responsible for my side of the street uh, and if somebody else has done me wrong i can go to them and i can can talk to them but as long as i can kind of clean up my side of the street as it relates to that i'm doing good yeah and i feel by doing the work that i'm doing now and like the work that that you're doing um, with with everything that you're involved with, um, with the fire service, is it, just it's amazing. It's our way of of being us, being who we are, and and giving back and doing the right thing. And to me, that's that's freeing and gives me that um, that pep in my step back and that that purpose. I still have the purpose. I'm still active on the job. I still have purpose every day, going out and serving the citizens. But this other purpose is just like, um, 
it's it's a breath of fresh air now um just knowing that and, and i'd like to go back to just one more thing and i and i know you know that's a lie one more thing him he's gonna have like <laughs> 500 more things but um i, I just want to state too that i have not stopped therapy i will never stop therapy i have a um uh, personal agreement with myself and I've told my therapist I was like I'm going to go every other week and that that's what I still to this day every other week and I told my current therapist I say hey if, if I come in and I don't have anything going on nothing has traumatized me or hurt me we're just going to sit back and we'll just catch up on the the past uh, week and a half or two weeks and shoot the shit and it works out great like that because once you stop that cycle it's hard to get back into it. And I don't want that to happen to me. And I recommend that to everybody. And anybody that's out there that's like hearing this and this might be helping them encourage to take that step to get therapy. I advise the, the same thing. Once you get in there and you start it and you find that right fit for you, keep it up. Even if you feel like um, they, you've been fixed or, and you, or you're in a much better place and you don't need it anymore, keep going. You could back it off, back it off to maybe once a month, but I would never, me personally, I would never go less than once a month. And um, I, I can't stress that enough. I think that's very important for us. I, I wish that, um, I know you guys in Ohio have collective bargaining. Uh, we don't have that here in Virginia. I wish we could do contracts here where we could put some kind of better mental health um, treatment to cover therapy sessions and, and everything. But um, for those of you out there that can do something like that, push for it and, and stick with it. So, Absolutely. No, a, a lot, a lot there too. And I, I'm with you as far as uh, I think forever and ever, I'm going to be, talking to a clinician you know right now it's still once a week but you know i i'm like you i don't think it would be ever anything ever than every other week and that's gonna yeah. be forever and that's just that's just how it is now and and i realize that that's why part of me and kind of why i asked that question earlier it's just there's part of me that it still remembers when i didn't have to do everything i have to do now and and i miss yeah. that part but i know I know this is this is just this is how it is. So, yeah. But with that being said, uh, you mentioned earlier too. You talked about the tools for the job, and this job has changed a lot since 1993 when you started, or 99 when I started. Um, my gosh, especially regarding behavioral health. I know you feel like it's still, and I agree with you. It still has a ways to go, but uh, there are a lot of things depending on the fire department, depending on the, the state even, there's a lot of things that are here now that weren't there before. Stuff like, and I know you can touch on all the stuff, but, you know, actually getting our spouses involved. Um, talking to the recruits about doing this stuff, you know, earlier. to So where they know what they're getting into. At least they have an idea, an inkling, unlike you and I. And and they're they're taught to actually talk about it to get the stuff out of them to not shove the stuff down and down. And just like you said, uh, wait for your bucket to overflow. 
you know, what are some other things that you've seen in your journeys that are, are just helpful for all this stuff to, to where the, the next generation hopefully doesn't have to deal with things quite like you and I did. Yeah, I, th I think you hit the nail on the head. A lot of the things that you said are, are starting to get implemented now. We're transitioning. Um, I'm finding out from a lot of you guys um, from the old SISM um, process, which we're going from that to peer support, which peer support is technically, it's just another branch out off of the SISM tree. Um, comes from the, the the same, very similar background. But um, th that transition, I think, is huge. Uh, departments uh, instituting peer support. And regardless of if you still have SISM or peer support, it it's amazing that you have something. We we really need something for our, our members. Excuse me, I have found out still through a, talking to a lot of people that there's there's many, many, many departments out there that have nothing. And that just blows my mind in this this time and age where this is one of the, the newer hot topics. But the state of Virginia, um, several years ago, uh, our governor instituted for all first responders across the board coming onto the job that uh, they need to be given a mental health mental health training, awareness training. And it's not defined as one particular class, so it's kind of pick or choose, but they're getting something. But I was just having a, a, another conversation before you and I with somebody, and so many are just looking at that, this is what I'm hearing, as, okay, we did it, we checked the box, we gave this to our guys, and we met the, the criteria. But we, we really need to do more on that and, and build on it. How you were talking about when um, like our, the academies, the, the young um, people coming in, uh, they need to be taught what they're gonna experience, what they're gonna see. Also the, the family dynamic too. Uh, one of the things that, that I've been trying to help and implement within um, my organization or, or any organization, when I go and talk to people, I, I try and push this um, to them and let them know the importance of it is um, I, I want to do like a family day. Um, when the, the recruits let them, they will just talk for fire since we're a couple of firefighters right now. But um, once they learn their skills towards the end of the, the fire academy, let's set up something on a, a weekend and their loved ones or significant other or whoever they choose can come and, and watch them do like a couple skills and, and stuff like that, put their gear on. But then I want to have, while you have all of them there, the, um, the, the first responder and significant others, I want to talk to them as a whole and share all this stuff, what they're going to see, what they're going to be exposed to, what they're going to feel. That way the loved ones too can know what to look out for, signs and symptoms and, and different things, because I might not know when to get help, but if my loved one would have had this training back in the day, she would have known that, oh, I think he's really being bothered by some of the stuff he's seen on the job. Let me reach out to somebody and try and get him help. And that just wasn't the case, but I really uh, think we need to do more with that now. 
and um, I, I would love to to see something like that implemented. We, my department, we talk to the recruits. Uh, right now, we have um, like a two-hour window during their academy to talk to them, let them know about our peer support, our chaplains group, just all these resources that they can utilize. And um, it, it seems to be working pretty good and, and helping out. But it's after that, you, you got to, because that's just planting a seed. And we, we got to plant a lot of seeds. And for every 100 seeds you plant, you might just get one or two that, that actually blossom. But if you keep planting these seeds, some of these guys are going to start coming to you and be like, oh, I remember Captain Moore when he came and spoke at my academy and uh, told us about mental health and, and everything. And um, I, I'm going to reach out to him. So it, it's planting those seeds and making that, that difference. Um, one other thing that I would like to see us do, I know um, uh, there's several departments, probably dozens across the country that are already doing a model similar to this, but it's making those, those bonds and relationships with therapists and counselors. And I think one of the best ways to do that is if not fully embedding them within an organization, uh, doing doing it partially. And when I say embedding, um, have them come and do ride-alongs, um, hang out at different firehouses. And just so our guys and girls get comfortable with them and they're learning more about us, but in the same, um, same time, I mean, you, you know, us firefighters, we're sizing up everybody. <laughs> when, when, wherever we are, we're at Applebee's or whatever, we're sizing up the people coming in the door or whatever, but um, we're going to be sizing up those therapists or clinicians as they're embedded with us and riding along. And I think that's a, a great uh, way to form that, that bond. We might not need them right that moment, but um, it, it could be um, a shift later or it could be a year or so later. Your memory, like, oh, I had therapist uh, Jane Doe. I remember um, she rode with us not too long ago, and I, I'm, I'm going to reach out to her now. That's another seed that we can plant within our agencies to uh, have as a tool for our first responders. Because God knows for, for us firefighters, we save the, the, the world's problems. We, we solve them all and save everything at the kitchen table. So imagine uh, a therapist sitting down at the kitchen table with us while we're breaking bread and um, just solving all the world's problems and all the department's problems and everything, um, just learning more about us. And then when they start sharing things too, I, I think that would be a really excellent thing. You, you know, just kind of piggyback on that. Um, I was able to bring in a clinician to do, I guess, essentially a, a checkup from the neck up with with all the members involved you know we we end up getting a, a grant after our, our mass shooting in 2019 uh, to use for health and safety and i was able to talk to union into doing that and 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 bringing the therapist around and and i think part of it being um the fact that she was kind of endorsed by the union was helpful you know there's there's trust where i'm at with the union not necessarily as much with the department unfortunately but with the union, definitely. So 
we brought her around and the whole idea was i i really didn't think a lot of people would actually talk to her at the firehouse uh, we were gonna we took took the apparatus out of service everybody had an opportunity to talk i thought people would would basically go in there and say hi i'm good thanks and 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 i was okay with that because i knew that the therapist was going to give her car to them and i actually thought that what would happen is you know as soon as as soon as she left they they'd go in her bunk room and text her call and say hey i really i really would like to talk to you and and i i thought it would open up the window to everything i guess the doorway really to that that way but in actuality a lot of my members actually took the time and talked and there was uh, and i forget the numbers off my head but a lot of them had first of all never seen a clinician and a lot of them did get referred whether it was to her or another program whatever it may be they did get referrals and uh i think the department is that much better because of that and just like you said later on down the line you know maybe they're okay right now but if uh, something happens later on, they have a bad run, relationship problems, whatever it may be, they know that clinician, they met that clinician, they're not scared of that clinician, and maybe it'll be that much easier to make that phone call, which you alluded to earlier, was hard to make. And I've yeah. I've made that I've made those phone calls before too, and it's the heaviest. Your phone is never heavier than at that very point when you have to press that green button to call. Yeah. You know, so trying to just break down those barriers and make things as accessible as possible and easiest, um, that's the key to wherever you're at. Yeah, exactly. And um, it, it's one, <laughs> I keep, keep going with one, 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 one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just, just another thing that I hadn't really, or, or we haven't touched on yet. I know we did um, personally before we started the the podcast here, but um, is the the whole family dynamic? I, I know I did talk about the the eggshells of, of my family and everything, but the the traumas that we're exposed to and what we bring home it devastates a family if we don't treat it. And when we're talking about us finding therapists and therapists working with us and the right fit. I think it's an excellent idea that we do the same for our, our significant others and even our children. Um, they're probably going to need to go to a therapist to understand fully what's going on with us and, and to get help as well. Um, I almost made it my entire career without join, joining the uh, divorce club. And um, unfortunately, um, my marriage couldn't survive it, and it is at no fault to my ex-wife. Um, she she was amazing. She stood by my side for a long, long time with a lot of the stuff that I was bringing home and my actions and and everything. And she 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 was a blessing. She helped out a lot, but eventually things do get. I know. Marriage is supposed to be when we do our vows till death do us part and, and everything. That's um, unfortunately, um, that's not always the case. And that wasn't the case in my marriage. And my my marriage ended, um, like I said, at no fault 
of my wife's. I, I will never, or ex-wife's, never speak bad about her. And um, it just, the, the post-traumatic stress, not only does it get the better of me and us that have it, it gets the better of our families at times. So it, it, it cost me a lot. Um, we do have a um, amicable relationship still. And um, we have both since moved on. And I am, like I said, uh, when we were talking earlier about how to get back to where we were before everything, I am free all of that stuff now. I'm living my best life for, um, I'm, I know you've seen uh, some of my social media stuff and people that follow me on, on social media see a, a lot of my um, videos and things that I post where I am advocating for mental health and wellness for first responders, but um, you'll see me posting from the beach talking about it or, or whatever, but I'm yeah, truly... Yeah, I get, I get jealous <laughs> of that, by the way. Yeah, I'm going to be sure you get those and, and see those when it's um, minus 20 out in Ohio and you have like 50 feet of snow or something, so... <laughs> but um, no, I'm truly regardless of what happened in my past, because like we said, or I said earlier, the job doesn't define me. My past, regardless of what it was, doesn't define me either. Um, sometimes we do have to hit rock bottom because you can build a hell of a foundation off of a bottom full of rocks. So what I did, I hit rock bottom, then I just built up from there. And um, the the other analogy that a lot of people use is the the Phoenix is is rising from the ashes and man i am i I'm, i get goosebumps when i i, I say all this because i'm so I'm so happy and and everything but that that's that's where i'm at man i'm uh, i've risen and i haven't stopped i'm gonna keep on rising i'm gonna keep on going on these tangents and um, advocating for first responders everywhere at every level that i can and um I just, I won't stop to my last breath. I don't want to, well, I will say that I will never fall down to the depths where I was before. Are we, or, or am I going to have setbacks? Absolutely. There, there's going to be setbacks. We're, we're all, we're only human. There's going to be things that, that set us back and um, that still bother us or affect us. But the difference is now is that I have healthy coping mechanisms i not only have tools somebody didn't just say hey here's a tool imagine at the firehouse if somebody your your very first time ever you didn't know what anything was and no experience somebody just gives you like a, a set of irons I'm like here you don't know what to do and how to use them to force a door or, or whatever it's no good to you so not only do i have the the tools somebody gave me the tools I have the know-how to use these tools, but more important than, than both of those two things is knowing when to use those tools. So I, I quickly now recognize when I'm starting to go into a funk and, and slip back into rackets or whatever, and it gets corrected quickly and um, never again. Yeah. You know, uh, you mentioned spouses. Um, I'm still married, uh, and that is it's a lot of it's been a lot of work that's been put into that because I, I've also like just uh, everything I I brought everything home and 
eggshells, I mean, everything. Again, a lot of parallels. Um, what I was able to do that I think was helpful um, is, is I did start talking about things with her. And then I also started including her in my conference going and doing stuff like uh, the the bridge retreat and Ohio assist. And like from, from that she gathered, like she realized that, I mean, I'm a, I am a jerk, but like, I don't necessarily want to be a jerk. Like there's a lot of things that this job has done to me and, and, and the way I act is because of that. But gain, have, having her have that understanding has been truly amazing. And it's been significant enough to where like this year at this year's conference in uh, exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio, <laughs> uh, October 25th to 27th at exoticbeavercreek.com. That's not a porno site. That's actually our website we bought, but <laughs> I digress. The last day, uh, Nami is going to be there with Dr. Minda O's as well. And she's, they're going to do a spousal training. They're going to talk about all this stuff. So, I mean, it's, it, it's already impacted me enough to where I, I told Nick, like, this is a good idea to do at our conference. And he's, he was all on board on that too. So, um, so that's going to happen there, but that's, if, if you're not doing that already, if you're not bringing your spouses to events and to learn about this stuff and to get actually get in your head and understand why you do what you, you do I'm telling you, it's a lot, it's, it's helpful if you're able to do that. If they gain that understanding, it's going to make things so much more easier because they understand your why they understand why you sit with your back to the wall, looking at the door. They understand why you're always just hyper vigilant and, and, you know, you're, you know, I, I'm paranoid about my, my kid crossing the street still, you know, I mean, it's, I, I can't stop that stuff. That's just how my mind acts now. And, but there's, there's reasons why I feel that way. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things I talk about also, uh, I just point out and everybody gets a, a good chuckle out of it when I do my presentations is I'll, I'll show a couple pictures and talking about the hypervigilance. And one is inside a restaurant and it's a table there, a round table. And I was like, where, where would most of you guys sit? I, I bet you it's probably, and I point out a chair that's sitting on one end of the table. It's a circle. It does have an end. Yeah. But um, sitting there where you can see everything in front of you and the entry and exit. And um, everybody's like, yeah, that, that's what we would do. I was like, that's what all the cops in the room when I speak to them would, would do is sit there and do that. The firefighters also were hypervigilant. But my firefighters also would be looking up at the, um, the sprinkler fire suppression system if there's anything in there. We'll be looking at other means of egress. And then I show another one of um, it's a picture of the firehouse. Everybody's backed in. I, I was like, I don't know why the hell we do it. But we, uh, everybody, when I, I talk, I, they they relate to it all. They're like, oh, yeah, we all back in, too. It's like maybe we, we, we just, we like sitting in our cars that way before we go in. We get to see everything, the, the big picture of stuff or, or whatever. But we all have that hypervigilance. And we, we, we can learn or need to learn to better manage it. We're always going to be hypervigilant. We're always going to be on the lookout, on the ready and, and everything. But we can't let it control us. And. I think for so many of us and myself for so many years, it was always um, a uh, overwhelming sense of that hypervigilance that I let control me. And 
I don't let it um, fully take over my body like it used to. And uh, my therapist, when I first started going, always talked about my shoulders were always up here because I'm like always just so tense and couldn't get uh, relaxed and everything. But now it's just I'm relaxed. I'm still always scoping, uh, scanning things out and, and all, but um, it's just one less thing that I try and let bother me. And um, I don't know how to work this into our conversation right now, and it might sound kind of awkward in the podcast, but uh, either if you can check your cell phone right now or I can just outright say something, I'm, um, I sent you a message. My battery is getting really low and I don't have the um, charger accessible right this second. Oh, I see. I had it on do not disturb. I saw that. I've got all sorts of, wow, people like me or they want money or something. Why don't you, um, let's wrap it up. Let's, uh, you told me before, um, you gave me some numbers of all that stuff, but do you do your your final, you know, um, slide? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I told you that I always do, and and people that follow me on social media, is I started at um, my first conference where I presented in um, the Dallas, Texas area in 2020. Um, I wanted to put my personal cell phone number up on a, the, the very first slide and let everybody know that's what it was and that they could reach out to me for anything. Um, if they had just regular questions or um, were struggling with something, I always give the disclaimer. Um, I know we, you and I talked earlier about disclaimers from organizations and stuff like that. I don't give the disclaimer that my thoughts are my own or anything like that, although they are, they're not the thoughts of my organization or department. <laughs> Um, they are my own personal beliefs and thoughts, everything that I'm saying here. But the disclaimer that I, I always give everybody with my phone number is that um, I'm not a clinician, not a therapist, and um, God knows I am sure as hell not a doctor. Um, but what I am is I'm a fire captain, I'm a colleague, I'm a friend, and most importantly, I will always listen. That's uh words that I'm, I'm putting out there now, I will always listen. If um, you're, you're, you're struggling or, or hurting or going through something and you, you need to pick up the phone and just reach out to somebody and you don't want to call a therapist just at that moment, or you don't know who to call, you got my number. And um, even if you're not struggling, you just want to call and bounce things off of me for your agency to, to better help you guys out or, or whatever it may be. It's my own personal number, and you actually alluded to it earlier. That cell phone doesn't weigh 5,000 pounds like we think it does at, at times of uh, hurt and, and pain and trauma in our lives. Pick it up. Use it. Shoot me a text. Give me a phone call. Um, when I started this or the idea of it back in 2020, um, I was kind of um, told that I was crazy that I'm going to get telemarketers calling me about my uh, car's warranty and all that. Well, hell, you guys got all that, not me. And um, I, I was like, you know what? I, I don't care if um, I'm getting people calling me from all across the country for just stupid stuff, um, spamming me. 
that's that's all fine and dandy. I'll deal with that. I'll accept it as long as I can just reach out and connect with one person. Um, to this day, I am uh, 1,000, we just talked about the Rain Man thing. I think it's 1,562 people have reached out to me and um, have reached out to me either by text or phone. And I always ask everybody if I can keep in touch with them and do buddy checks. And nobody has told me no once. So I reach out for my list just randomly um, weekly and just shoot people just that message because I think that connection right there is, is huge. You never know what somebody's experiencing or going through from day to day. And uh, they could be having a rough moment, could be having an awesome day. But if they're having that rough moment and just so happen out of the blue, they receive a text from me, um, it could, could change things. And I, I truly believe in that and believe in karma and, and everything. And um, I know a lot of good things are, are coming from this. And I never would have imagined um, when I first decided to put my number out there. It's not just out there on um, when I speak at conferences. It's out there on my social media. I blast it out there. I want you guys to have it. 757-536-3373. Call me for anything. I would much rather love to, to talk to you and, and have a conversation than to um, hear. Oh, no. Well, but Chris said that his battery was dead, and uh, I'm glad that he actually was able to get that whole number out there. Um, so we were wrapping up anyway, but once again, Chris Moore, uh, Captain Chris Moore, also known as Chuck Three, and <laughs> he's just going to be texting me like, oh, no, my battery's out. But we were about to wrap it up anyway. So with that, you know, if you need anything, call Chris. Um, you can call me too, 937-604-3611. So and with that, I'm done. I'll talk to all of you guys and see you all next month. Take care until then.